0: Alright, it's great to see you today. Hope you're doing well. First Peter is where we're going to be, so if you want to grab your Bible, um, it's going to be important that you have one in front of you. And we're going to be looking at it a lot. If you need a Bible, feel free to grab one of those underneath your seat. Or we've got a big lost and found little Bible thing going out here, so feel free to pick one of those up. You'll probably get a really nice one. 50, 60, 70 bucks out there, so feel free to take one of those. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse. Uh, we're going to start in verse 13 again. Um, we're going to pick up the last end of this section, but I want to start where we started last week to kind of catch you up to speed. Um, because this is kind of one section. It's, it's basically two sentences in the Greek. And so, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 starts like this. Therefore. Now, last week we said that you need to make sure you mark that, underline that, put an asterisk by that, highlight that. Whatever you have to do to make sure you see that therefore, you need to do it. Because if you miss that therefore, if you look over that therefore, you're about to, to, to make it virtually impossible to live in the commands that Peter is about to give. In in verse 13, 14, 15, 16, and into 17, the first three commands of the book of Peter come out. And and if you don't see the content of of the therefore, the therefore is pointing back. If you miss the content of 1 through 12, then these commands become crushing for you. They become impossible for you to live in and live under joyfully. Um, Listen to to one commentator. His name is Howard Marshall. Um, Wrote a commentary on 1 Peter. Listen to how he describes this transition that happens at verse 13 with that therefore. He says, the mood of the letter changes at this point. Throughout the preceding section, the indicative mood, statements of facts, the indicative uh, mood has been used almost exclusively to offer a factual statement of the situation of Christians as they experience the grace of God that leads to salvation. From this point onward, so the mood changes from this point onward, verse 13 onward, imperatives dominate the book. They become dominant. And the tone is one of command. This order of indicative statement of fact about what God has done, followed by imperative, what you're to do, is not by chance. First must come the gospel and only then the response to it. First we hear of what God has graciously done for us, 1 through 12, and then of what we are to do in obedience to him. That's the rest of the book of Peter. The latter is not possible except when it is made so by the former. So I, I just want to stress that again to you that if you miss the content of 1 through 12, then these commands that you're going to hear today and for the rest of, of Peter, th- these commands are going to be crushing to you. All, all the life will be stripped out of them. It makes it impossible to live, live in them. So therefore, that, that therefore is key. All that we talked about for the first four weeks in, in First Peter. Therefore, preparing your minds for action And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So I just want to revisit some of what we talked about last week, just to introduce where we're going this morning. So we talked about last week how how these first four verses here, uh, 13 through um, 16, that, that this is essential a call to be holy by fixing your mind on hope by fixing your hope on jesus that this is this is the point peter is making it is a call for you to have a christ-like life for for you as a christian in light of what god has done for you and done to you for you to live holy that that the people of god saved by the gospel of god would live god god reflecting and, and gospel displaying lives that if you have been born again verse three that, that your life should boast of that. That if you have been saved, 10 through 12, 1 Peter chapter 1, if you've been saved, then your life should show that you have been saved. If you've been redeemed, that your life should should reflect the fact that you have been redeemed. This is, this is his point, that in light of what God has done for you, that you are now called to live a holy life. Okay, now I, I want to just make sure you see the relevance of this call to holiness. But I think if you're not careful, you'll miss this. Like, is there something inside of you this morning that that screams and cries out, okay, God, I know I need this. God, I need to be holy. I need you to work this and massage this into me. I need you to to more and more redeem and renovate more more parts of my heart. I need more and more for my life and my heart to be under the sway of your spirit. I mean, is there something in you that says, I need that. I'm all in for that. I'm in need of that. And what I found is that most people don't have that. And I think the reason is, one of the reasons, is because we're just not very self aware. We don't know ourselves as well as we should know ourselves. We haven't stared at ourselves in the mirror long enough to see what we really are. I, I don't know how many of you, this is going to be like testing the memory bank here. Remember back, I think this was in the 1960s, um, a guy named, um, and, and Edmund Clown in his commentary, he, he kind of relates this story. In the 1960s, um, a, a guy by the name of Ye Hill Denor, he's a Jewish guy. He um, Well, okay, go back all the way to World War II. He was sent to concentration camps. He was one of those that, that found themselves, I think it was in Auschwitz. And so um, he survived that. And then years later, I think it was in 1961, um, they, are, they found, arrested, and tried a guy by the name of Adolf Eichmann. I don't know if you all remember that story back in the day. So they try him. And, and one of the things they had to do—and by the way, this guy, what, Adolf, he, he was one of the guys that architected the whole concentration camp system that, that killed millions of people. And so to build the case against them, they, they brought in concentration camp survivors— People that had been under this ruthless man that, that had just brutalized them. And so um, th- there's, this, there's this scene when um, Denor has come into the courtroom. And for the first time, he is standing face to face with Adolf Eichmann. This guy that, that had literally killed many of his friends and family. That for him, personified evil, right? And in that moment, he began sobbing un- uncontrollably when he saw this guy. Again, sobbing uncontrollably, he faints and falls to the floor. Um, and, and a few years later, a guy named Mike Wallace with 60 Minutes, uh, ABC, NBC, whatever one it is. Um, he did an interview with, with Denor and he said, okay, so what was it? He replayed that scene and, and he said, what was it? I mean, what, what caused you to, to sob uncontrollably, flaw, you know, fall to the fo- flank, faint, fall to the floor? What, what caused all that? Was it these horrid memories of, of all this stuff that had happened to you? Was it just hatred for this man? Was it just that you were scared to death of him? What, what happened in that moment? And, and here's Edmund Clowney com- commenting on that. Um, Dinor said, no, it was none of these. Rather, as Dinor explained to Wallace, all at once he realized that Etchman was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This eachman, he was an ordinary man. And Denor went on to say, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like him. And, and Wallace goes on to kind of summarize that whole, like Denor's terrible discovery as that, that this eachman, it, it's in all of us. Now, now, do you see that about yourself? I mean, do you believe that that each man is in you? That you're capable of that sort of a thing? See, this is like one of the forming planks of the Bible, that that is true. None of of the great words of the Bible like grace and redemption and salvation makes sense apart from each man being in you. That, That you, every part of you has been shot through with sin. The Bible doesn't make sense without that being in there. I, the, the, the Bible's clear on this, that each man is in you. Do you remember the story of David? He um, commits adultery and kills the, the man, the husband just to cover his tracks. Do you remember that? Now, what is the Bible teaching us there? Is it that, that each man is in some of This is David. David, right? David. Is the Bible teaching us that, that each man is in some of us? Or that, that each man is in the best of us? How about the Sermon on the Mount? Um, do you remember Jesus says that... Uh, you've heard it said, do not, do not kill. But I tell you, do not hate. Because here's the thing. Hate is, is murder in the acorn form, right? It's just murder in the acorn. It's, hate is each man in the acorn. It hasn't sprouted and, and grown the concentration camps. But it's all there buried in an acorn. Now, do you, do you see yourself like that? That you have that sort of capability in you. That those buried seeds are in you. Those buried acorns are in you. See, until you start to see that, that each man is in you, that you're capable of unimaginable things that you are. That you're capable of that. You'll never cry out with Paul in Romans 7 for God to deliver me from this body of death. You'll never cry out for that. You'll never want this holiness that we're talking about here until you see that you're capable of all of that. That it's relevant for you. That, that holiness applies to you. That each man is in you. And holiness is the thing that God uses to root those things out of you. Okay, so to summarize a couple of things from last week. First, holiness defined. Like, what is holiness? We talked about this Old Testament word, kadesh. It means to cut off or separate or to cut loose from. It's this idea of separating from from normal purposes and fully devoting yourself to the purposes of God. This is is holiness. And so we, we put four clarifying statements around it. One is that it means to be fully at the disposal of God. To be fully at God's disposal, every part of you, every piece of you, under His dominion. For Him, you belong to Him. One one um, pastor he illustrated it with, a, with reading a newspaper that you might read over thirty different clippings in a newspaper 30 different articles but then you find one article that you like and you want to use for something down the road so what do you have to do if you're going to use that article you have to cut that article out of the paper and set it aside for a different use this is the idea of holiness it's being fully at the disposal of God it's looking at God and saying God waste my life spend my life on your plans and purposes so it's being fully at the disposal of God too it means living with a single passion no, no disordered loves that everybody has something in the center of their life driving them, pushing them. It's at the center that everything else comes out from. And, and holiness is God being at the center of that, that God is the driving passion of your life, that, that everything else orbits around God, that he's at the center of this thing. It means living with a single passion. Three, it means putting sin to death. That we're not cuddling with sin or coddling sin, but we're actually trying to crucify sin in our life. I love what John Owen said, um, Old Puritan. He said, let no man think to kill sin with few, easy, or gentle strokes. Now, does that describe you? Trying to kill sin with few, easy, and gentle strokes? I mean, you don't kill sin by giving it a good talking to. By setting it in time out. That is not the way, that's not the way you kill sin. You, you kill sin with, with many hard and violent and savage strokes. With, it, with the view of decimating it and destroying it. That, that's how you deal with sin. It's got to be dealt with altogether differently. It means putting sin to death. And fourth, it means a comprehensive change in conduct. That holiness is, is something that, that influences and impacts all of your life. That maybe you could think of it this way. That there's no, okay, God, you've got it all except this one thing. That there's no except this is. That, that it's got, it's, it's you've really got it all. There's no compartmentalized piece of you. That, that God, you've got three-fourths, but this little quarter over here, that this stays separate from you. That there's no except this is in your life. Okay, and, and let me finish kind of the summary of last week by saying this. That holiness is both difficult and demandant. It's both difficult and demanding. This is kind of two sides of the holiness coin. That first, it it is difficult. I don't want you to think otherwise. Holiness is hard work. I I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, um, you don't know how bad you are until you try to be good. Right? You don't know how bad you are until you actually get in the groove and grind of actually trying to be good. You don't know that until that happens, right? This is Galatians 5 when it says that there's actually a war going on inside of a Christian. That a Christian is one of the most conflicted people on the universe. Because they've actually now got the spirit of God that is dominating their life. That has come in and dethroned the previous ruler of the flesh. But it didn't destroy it. So the flesh has now kind of retreated to the jungle where it wages its guerrilla warfare. Right, you've got this war going on inside of you. It's difficult. It's hard work. This is why um, Hebrews twelve fourteen says you have to strive for holiness, labor for holiness, sweat for holiness. That it is difficult business, but at the same time, it's demanded. Hebrews twelve fourteen goes on to say you have to strive for holiness, and without it, no one sees the Lord. Without it, no one does. So, it, so it's necessary. This is the defining mark of a Christian. You don't earn your salvation by being holy, but holiness is one of the defining marks that you have been saved. Right? And we're not after perfection. We said this last week that, that we're all at different speeds and different paces. The issue is not perfection. The issue is progression. That you are moving toward holiness. That your life, the trajectory of your life, the panoramic picture, when you look at it from a wide angle lens, there's a lot of ups and downs in this, but the wide angle lens, it sees you progressing in holiness. It's demanded. It's a necessary mark. We said this last week that Charles Spurgeon said if, if your religion, your version of Christianity, doesn't make you holy, if that's not your version, then your version of Christianity will be the one that damns you. That's sobering, isn't it? Okay, so, it, so it's, it's necessary. It's, it's demanded. Holiness has to be a mark on your life. Okay, now here's where we're going to pick it up this week in verse 17. With holiness and its motives. So it's one thing for you to hear um, th- this call to holiness and say, I need to be holy. It's one thing for you to say, I need to be holy. It's another thing for you to say, I want to be holy. And until we connect the I need to to the I want to, we will never be able to get into holiness long term. It will be a fad, kind of a spasm of activity, but we'll never get there long term. It'll never be the panoramic shot of our life. So it's important that we've got the right motives that are connected to this call to be holy. Um, maybe you could think of it this way, that it would be like giving a car a great paint job putting nice wheels on it, putting directions on on the steering wheel of exactly how to get to the destination, marking every turn along the way, but just forgetting to put the motor in the car. Okay, this is what happens when you don't have the proper motive attached to the call to be holy. It's like, it's like putting the directions in the car without a motor to actually get there. So see, it's not enough for you this morning to say, okay, I realize that the God has put a call on my life to be holy. I need to read the scripture. I need to cut um, the, the root of lust at the core of it. I, I need to, to get past forgiveness and uh, unforgiveness and bitterness. I, I need these things to be cut out of my life. I need that. It's one thing for you to say that. And it's another thing for you to say this. I want that. I really want that for my life. I, I, the, the deepest part of my heart this morning wants those things to be there. So this is where um, Peter's going to help us out in verse 17. This is going to be one sentence, 17 through 21 in, in the Greek here. It says this... 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Okay, this is a key idea. Let me, let me just throw this out to you. This needs to stick somewhere in you. That hope and holiness are not primarily sustained by you doing things. Hope and holiness are not primarily sustained by you doing things, but by you knowing some things. You, know, you get the difference in that? Hope and holiness are not, they're not sustained by you primarily doing things. So I need to read this and to get that. I need to it's not primarily done by you doing things. It's by you knowing things. So Peter gives us three things that if you want your hope and holiness sustained, that you've got to know these things. Like, I mean, not know them just up here, but like deep down in your soul, you've got to know these things. You've got to believe these things. Here's the first one. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father, God as father, you've got to know that God is your father, a good father for you. I like get assuming in this passage that, that you're calling out to God as father. Okay, now I want to be careful here because I, I know this, that your earthly father profoundly shapes the way you think about God as father. Now, every dad in the room, you probably ought to look up here for just a second. That needs to be a wake-up call for you. That you have a profound influence on how your sons and daughters think about God as Father. Okay, now when I think about God as Father, I I smile at that. I've got no distrust. I've got no doubt about that. My my dad did a great job, a phenomenal job of modeling what, what a godly father should be. I mean, he did a great job of modeling um, good wisdom, good provision, good protection. He did a great job of modeling those things. So when I hear this, I smile. But I know that many in the room, you do not have a father like that. You you don't have a father that that modeled what 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 it looks like for God to be a good father for you. And because of that, I mean, you need your view of God as father. You desperately need that redeemed. Okay, listen to J.I. Packer talk about the importance of you getting like, this idea redeemed in you. Okay, and to some degree, we all have to have it redeemed. Even our best earthly fathers were not perfect pictures of God as Father. So we're all in the same boat of needing it redeemed. Needing to see God as the Bible does and displays him as a good father for us. Listen to J.I. Packer talk about this. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity. Big statement. He says this. Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption our grasp of we are a child of God, been adopted by God, that, that at great cost to himself, God has chosen us and adopted us into his family. That he's bestowed all the family blessings on us. He's put us in line for the family inheritance, 1 Peter 1, 4. That God has done all of that. He's adopted you in, put his stamp of approval on you. He's a good father for you. He's a good protector for you. I mean, this is vital that you get a sense of this. That God is a father. This is why in the New Testament you commonly see God referred to as Abba Father. That, that's a term of endearment and affection and of close, closeness and of intimacy. That, that there is this real tangible sense of God is a sovereign God and he is a good father. Leveraging all of his resources for my benefit and good. That he's trustworthy. He's dependable. Now let me ask you, do you see God that way? As Abba Father? I think you can a lot of times see it in your prayer life. Does your prayer life reveal that that you want things from God or that you want God as Abba? When you think about the the whole context of the book of 1 Peter, it's under the the heading of suffering. And some of you right now, I mean, you're in the throes of suffering. And can I just say that the key of surviving suffering is to view God as Father? It is the key. Before you need a theology about suffering, you need a God as father. That's what you need most. Um, I I equate it um, to to Hannah. I've got a three-year-old. And it is impossible so many times for Hannah to connect the dots. Like when she has had 19 snacks and I tell her, I'm not giving you your 20th snack. I'm not doing it. She cannot see that. She does not have the mental capacity to get, if I have one more though, it's probably going to put me in a sugar coma. She does not have the capacity to see that, does she? And so in, the, in, the, in that moment of no more snacks, here's what I've got to remind her of. Does your daddy love you? Do you think he loves you? Yeah, I know that you love me. Well, if, if you know that I love you, here's what you can do. You can trust me even when you don't understand me. And see, when you're going through suffering that you don't understand, you don't see how the dots connect, how this works out for you, all of that, here's what you need to know more than anything, that God is trustworthy for you. Now now put this in the context of holiness. It's the same motive for for surviving suffering as it is for walking in holiness. That that you need to see God as Father. I worked in a student ministry for eight years of my life. I'm pretty sure I get like a special mansion in heaven for this one, right? So eight years in student ministry. And I, I constantly had to work hard at drilling in this idea of God as Father. Because when when you hear commands that have been ripped out of the context of God as Father, the commands feel like a straitjacket to you, right? And so you try to preach it into a crowd of teenagers. Hey, you know sex? That's supposed to be within the boundaries of marriage. Now what does that feel like to a teenager? That feels like straitjacket God who's trying to rob all of my fun. That's what it feels like. And so it's constantly reminding them that this is not straight jacket God. This is not God robbing you of your fun. This is God walking you into real joy and real fun. This is what God is. But you've got to see God as Father to get there. You've got to see God as Father that's actually protecting you in this command and not robbing your joy in this command. See, when we start running through the rest of 1 Peter, there are going to be difficult commands laid over your life. Like, love your enemies. Do good to those who don't do good to you. And see, if, if you don't have God as Father in view, you'll never walk in those. You'll never do it until you get this view of God that says, I don't even know how that's supposed to happen, but I'm gonna trust you and walk in it knowing that this is the road to real joy for me, that you're out for me, that you're leveraging things for me, that these commands are not from a capricious God who's robbing my fun, but from a good God who's walking me into real joy. So, so let me ask you again, do you see God as Father? trustworthy, dependable, for you. If you're a Christian, that's what he is. He goes on here. God's not just your father, but you also have to see God as your judge. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves, and this is going to be the, the third command, conduct yourselves with fear, It's a command to fear God. Con- conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Okay, so Peter's saying God is father. So as father, he can be trusted by you to, to walk you into real joy. But, but God is not just father. He is also judge. And as judge, you are to fear God. You're to fear God. You're to have a healthy fear of God. Okay, so let's drill into this idea of fear. Um, there, there's maybe three different sorts of fears that you could have. One is fun fear. Now, I love fun fear. I love to scare people. I love that. I don't know if you're uh, a guy that will wait around a corner for hours to scare. I am that guy, all right? So in, in our office, um, we've got uh, two bathrooms that are like around the hall. One's a men. one's a, a lady's. And just before I keep going here, let me, let me preface the story by saying they're both like the one stall, lock the door behind you sort of bathroom, right? So I just want to preface that because I'm about to tell you that I was in the ladies' bathroom. Okay. So, um, we're around our little conference table in our office here recently and Travis, one of the guys on staff, he has to go to the bathroom. So he gets up, goes to the bathroom and I'm thinking as soon as he walks out the door, it is game on. So I go to the, to the ladies' bathroom, turn out the lights and I'm waiting like a ninja in the night, right? I'm just waiting. Just waiting for the moment here, hoping that a lady does not walk in on me and I have to explain why I'm in the, the lady's bathroom in the dark. Door, uh, yeah, it was it would have been bad. Okay, so I, I'm waiting for Travis. He he busts out of the, uh, the the bathroom door beside me, and I can tell he's thinking, Rodney's in there. He's <laughs> our hallway here, the bathroom's over on this side. He's walking as close to the far wall as possible cautiously and slowly both eyes on the bathroom door right just just waiting for something to bust out of there <clears throat> about the time he's convinced himself that nobody's in there i bust out and I, this was a framer right i mean it was just one of those he did the heisman pose with was that whole thing you know it's like leg up arm down he would have sworn that a five seven bearded lady had just busted out of the bathroom to tackling. Okay, now I am all for the fun fear. I love it. This is why people skydive. This is why people bungee jump. This is why people do all of those things. It's fun fear. This is not what Peter's talking about. Um, <laughs> the, the second kind of fear is this, this bad fear that paralyzes. It's this paralyzing bad sort of a fear. It's this sort of fear that makes it impossible to move. It's this sort of fear that, that you're so worried, so so concerned that you can't do anything. It, it paralyzes you. It, it suffocates you, right? This is, this is the bad sort of paralyzing fear. And, and this is not what Peter's talking about either. He's not talking about a bad paralyzing fear, especially as it's related to God. He's not saying that you should have this paralyzing fear as you're standing before God. That God is first your father. You need to get that. And as father, here's what that means. That that he's a savior for you. That he's not first and foremost a judge for you. That you're no longer under the condemnation of God. That's Romans 8. That that, uh, John 5, 24, that you've passed from death to life. You're no longer under the judgment and wrath of God. That Jesus paid the full penalty of all of God's wrath, all of God's justice for sin. So you no longer have to have a paralyzing view of God. There no longer should be a dread in your heart when you think about God if you're a Christian. The paralyzing bad fear is gone. That is not what Peter is talking about. Thirdly, there's this other sort of fear that, that is this mobilizing fear. It's this good, healthy sort of a fear. It's this sort of a fear that actually moves you to mission. It actually moves you to God. It actually moves you to good and right things. This is the sort of fear that, that Peter is talking about. It's this healthy fear that mobilizes you to walk in holiness. It's this, it's this reverence from God, this respect of God that, that actually propels you forward. This is the sort of fear he's talking about. So, okay, when you think of fear in God, I just think it's important that you're thinking the right thing. This is not God saying, I'm going to judge you. It's not not that sort of fear that says, at the end of the day, we'll see about your final verdict. That's not it. As a Christian, fear in God says, I've got a healthy fear of God. I'm not afraid of God anymore because I know that the final verdict of God has already been spoken. And it says, approved, accepted, forgiven, cleansed. I already know that. So it's not that kind of a a fear. It's this healthy fear that that knows that God cares about our holiness. It's this healthy fear that knows that that God loves us too much to allow us to sit in unrighteousness, to sit in sin. It's the sort of fear that, that a teenager might feel if he's out past his curfew with the crowd that he shouldn't be with, doing things that he shouldn't, you know, shouldn't be doing. And he knows that his father loves him enough that he just might come looking for him. That he loves him enough and he's crazy enough that he actually might blow up this party in order to rescue him from it. It's that sort of a fear. This healthy respect of God, this healthy reverence for God that that knows that God is patient, that's God his father. But God is not a pushover as judge. That that God God will come after you. That that when you sin, when, when you're trying to sabotage God's passionate project of making you more like Jesus, that God will come after you in fatherly discipline. That God will discipline you as judge. That, that he, he, he will come along beside you and give you a spanking on the rear when you need it. Okay, this is what Peter is talking about. That you have that sort of, of a fear of God. And listen, that, that fear of God is not based on God condemning you. Listen to this. It's based on God correcting you. Okay, this is the sort of fear that we're talking about. This healthy fear that sees and knows God cares about our holiness. He hates sin. He's serious about us living holy lives. And then Peter's going to have something to say about fear in our lives. Look at verse 17, the the last phrase there. He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So let me ask you this question. Do you have a healthy fear of God? Do you have a healthy fear of God? I mean, a a healthy, deep reverence for God that, that keeps you away from sin and keeps you into righteousness, into holiness, You have that sort of fear of God. I I love what Chris Lungard, he he wrote a book called The Enemy Within. He said this about the fear of God. He says, we worship a tender father as well as a consuming fire. Sin can't breathe in an atmosphere of fear and reverence before God. You see that? Sin can't breathe in an atmosphere of of fear and reverence before God. It suffocates sin. Can you imagine your lust cheery and prosperous when you are on your face before a holy God? Do you fear God like that? A healthy fear of God. See, it's not just you primarily doing things that sustains holiness. It's you knowing these things. That God is father for you. He's trustworthy. That God is judge. He will come after you in fatherly discipline. So that should produce some fear in us. And then Peter's going to walk us into the last one in, in verse 18. God is not just father. He's not just judge. God's also your redeemer. Okay, so notice the progression. You're called to be holy sixteen or 13 through 16. You're called to see God as father. You're called to see God as judge. And then now he's going to bring us back to this bottom level motivator. Verse 18. God's redeemed you. He says this, 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable, uh, perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter's saying that you have been ransomed and you've got to see God as redeemer. Redemption or redeemed is this rich gospel-drenched word that has this idea of purchasing someone out of slavery. And Peter is saying, you've been purchased out of slavery. You need to see God like that. At great cost to himself, he has come and he's redeemed you. So, So I think there's a couple of things that this clarifies for us about redemption. Number one, that redemption implies previous bondage. It implies that we were previously enslaved to something. It, it implies that, that we, were, we were under lock and key to something else, to, to a ruthless master. It implies that. Okay, now and you see this um, in, in verse, let's see, 18 here. Where, where Peter's going to say, knowing that you've been ransomed from what? Not just from the penalty of sin, that that's part of being ransomed, but also from the power of sin. That you've been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Okay, now I think this is a really timely word for a lot of us in here. That you have been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Every family has baggage. Yours does. Now I hope you're aware of your baggage. I mean, if you don't think your family has baggage, it's because you're just not self-aware that your family has baggage. We all have it. That there are patterns of sin in all of our families, patterns of unbelief in all of our families that need to die. like generational things that have passed down from your great-grandfather to to your grandfather to your dad all the way down the the line here there are things that have been passed down like that and we could talk forever here we could talk about alcoholism we could talk about materialism legalism we could talk about any sort of ism you want to talk about we could talk about anger and impatience maybe it's passivity for your family i mean there's there's a billion of them all of our families have baggage in it so i want to talk to the dads first Dads, look at me for a second There are things that have been passed down to you that have been stuck onto your family tree. Just sin that has been modeled and seen so often that it becomes normal in your family. Okay, now now listen to me, dads. Here's what Peter's saying. Those things need to die with you. Those things need to be taken to the grave with you. They they don't need to be a part of what you pass down. The, The part of being redeemed means that God has redeemed you from a family lineage that leans this way towards sin. So so dad, I want you to hear this again. There are things that need to go to the grave with you. Mom's in the room. There are many things that have been passed down to you that need to die when you die. That your kids don't need to see these things. They don't need to hear these things. They don't need to be around. That that your legacy stops there. That, That your legacy is not marked by those things any longer. But when your kids think of you, what they see modeled by you is righteousness and holiness and godliness, not these things. They need to die with you. And, and kids in the room, I, I want you to hear this. that You're going to see a lot of things in your family that are not holy. They're not godly. They're not God-honoring. And, and here's what Peter is saying to you. That you've been redeemed from the futile things that are going to be passed down to you. So that you no longer have to be marked by these things. Your life doesn't have to be characterized by these things as well. It doesn't have to be. That your life can actually be marked by holiness and righteousness and godliness. Not those things. I just want you to hear that. Part of what it means to be redeemed is that the curse of sin is broken in your family, in your life. All these things that you have seen modeled before you, that these things are broken for you. That you don't have to follow in that family lineage. I love what Edmund Clowney says. He says, God's redemption breaks not only the chain that binds us to future doom or to the wrath of God. It does that, though. It breaks that chain, but it does more than that. It also breaks the chain of all the dead past that we have. All your dead past, broken. All your family junk, broken. All your family baggage, broken. It can die with you. Okay, redemption, it's not just, it doesn't just imply this this former bondage. Redemption also came at great and infinite cost. It came at an infinite cost. Look at verse 18 knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. And then he explains it, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, 19, but with what? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Peter's reminding you of this great salvation. He's reminding you that that you have been redeemed, that you have been stripped free from those things. He's reminding you of the cost of that salvation, That, that you could pile up all the gold on planet earth and you could not purchase your salvation. You couldn't do it. It wouldn't redeem you. That the, the only way you could be redeemed is at the infinite cost that God's one son, Jesus, him slaughtered on a cross for you. That is the only way you can be redeemed. You know that? It came at infinite cost to God. Peter also reminds us that redemption is the work of God. I, I think Peter knows that if we could take credit for our redemption that the self-righteous bent in our heart would do it so Peter says listen you can't take credit for it this is not your plan this is God's plan look at what it says in verse 20 he was foreknown before the foundation of the world that God planned your redemption before you orchestrated your first sin God orchestrated he planned your salvation Look at verse 20b, keep going there. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time. It was accomplished by God. So it was planned by God, your redemption and your redemption was accomplished by God. That at the right time, God sent Jesus to live a perfect life, a sinless life. To die a a, a death as a sinless substitute. And to be raised from the dead as a sinless savior. That God did all that. at the right time, God accomplished your salvation, making redemption possible. But there's more. Look, keep reading in verse 20 there. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. God not only planned it, not only accomplished it, it, God also applied it. I I love that personal twist there. For the sake of you. God God applied it to you. He gave gave faith to you as a gift. To you. He he saved you. Okay, so, so Peter knows... that that holiness is not sustained by primarily you doing things, but by you knowing things. So he's reminding you here. He's repeating the gospel again. He's reminding you. He's going over it again. This is the gospel. This is what God has done for you. This is redemption. And here's why he's doing that. Because redemption sustains hope and holiness. And we'll kind of land the plane here. Knowing that you have been redeemed from your former kind of futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, knowing that you've been redeemed from that, from the penalty, God, and the power of sin. Knowing that redemption is all the work of God. Th- this is what sustains hope, and this is what sustains holiness. Look at verse 21c there. So that your faith and hope are in God. Just that last phrase in verse 21. See, it's by knowing these things that you put your faith and your hope in God, that your faith and hope in God are sustained, that your holiness is sustained. It's only by knowing these things. So, so if today you would say this, man, I, I, I see the need for holiness, but I don't know if I want holiness. I don't know if I want that yet. I, I love what one pastor's in kind of the imagery he used to encourage kind of that scene and that question. He said, if that's you, if you would say, I, I want it, or I need it, but I just, I'm not sure that I want it. Here, here's maybe encouragement. For you to get at the foot of the cross where you can see the ocean of God's love there. And for you to stand on the shore of the ocean of God's love that can be dis, that's displayed and can be seen at the cross. And for you to hear and for you to listen to the loud noise of the waves of God's love breaking onto the beach. And for you, for you to allow that loud noise of those waves of God's love, showing you at the cross God's deep love for you, the seriousness of sin and the depth of God's love, for you to allow those, the loud noise of those waves to break on that beach, to allow the loud noise of those waves to sink deeply into your heart. And that is how hope and holiness is sustained. By you closing your eyes on the shore, and you looking at the seriousness of your sin there, by you, you hearing the seriousness of your sin and the depth of God's love for you. That, that on the cross you're seeing a picture of how serious your sin is. That Jesus had to die for it. That, that's how serious. He was crucified for it. But, and, and listen, until you see the seriousness of your sin, you'll never walk holy. It was so serious to God that he had to die for it. But, but that you're so loved by God that Jesus was glad to die for it. See, until you see the seriousness of your sin and the depth of God's love, you'll never be sustained for a life of hope and holiness in God. You'll never be sustained by it. So so here's my admonition to you. If you're on the the ledge and you're saying, God, I want it, I want it. Okay, I'm in for it. God, I I know that this is the the road. God, I want that. Then do this this morning. Look to the cross. Look, Look to Jesus. Look at the cross where hope and holiness are sustained. It's how we abide in holiness. It's how we begin holiness, and it's how we abide in holiness. Let let me land with with this quote from J.C. Ryle. If you're looking for holiness, if you want holiness, take this admonition. He says this. Men sometimes try to make themselves holy, and sad work they make of it. They toil and they labor and turn over new leaves and make many changes And yet, like the woman with the issue of blood, before she came to Christ, they feel nothing better, but rather worse. They run and labor in vain and little wonder, for they are beginning at the wrong end. Do you want to attain holiness? Then do this. Then go to Christ. Wait for nothing. Wait for nobody. Linger not. Think not to make yourself ready. There is not a brick nor a stone laid in the work of our sanctification or holiness until we go to Christ. Holiness is his special gift to his believing people. Holiness comes not of blood. Parents cannot give it to their children, nor yet of the will of the flesh. Man cannot produce it in himself, nor yet of the will of man. Ministers cannot give it to you by baptism. Holiness comes from Christ. Go then to Christ and say, Lord, not only save me from the guilt of sin, but send your spirit whom you promised and save me from its power. Make me holy. Would you continue to be holy? Then abide in Christ. He is the physician to whom you must daily go if you will keep well. He is the manna from which you must daily eat, the rock from which you must daily drink. His arm is the arm on which you must daily lean as you come up out of the wilderness of this world. Paul was a man of God indeed, a holy man, a growing, thriving Christian. And what was the secret of it all? He was the one to whom Christ was all in all. He was ever looking unto Jesus. In Philippians, I can do all things, he says, through Christ who strengthens me. In Galatians, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Final admonition and my encouragement to you. Let us go and do likewise. Amen? Let's pray. to give you a second just to sit under that and in that and and maybe even to, to throw this imagery back out to you maybe it would be good for you to close your eyes and for you to think about the cross where you see the ocean of God's love displayed for you And maybe you just need to listen this morning for the waves of God's love to come crashing onto the beach. That this is how serious sin is to me. Jesus died for it. But you would also hear the the wave of love that crashes behind that. It says, but here's the good news of the gospel is that I love you and Jesus was glad to die for. god is redeemer he's broken the curse of sin on you and for you he's broken the chain of sin in your family maybe it would be a good question to ask you today what what sort of things in your family need to die like today need to be crucified today don't need to be passed down to your kids And if you're in the room and um, you're not a believer in Jesus, here's my encouragement to you. Holiness begins by you coming to Christ. And so maybe a a proper response for you today would be to throw your hands up and say, God, I trust you. God, here's my life. I give it to you. And God, I'm treasuring you above all things. It's a good picture of faith. And when the Bible says you do that, you put your faith in Jesus, trusting and treasuring him that God will save you. He'll send his spirit to live inside of you to empower hope and holiness in you. So God, I pray that you would give us a good vision of the cross and all that you secured for us there. That that on the cross, you, you secured for us your fatherhood. You secured for us your your fatherly discipline, that that now we know that if you would go to this links to save us, that if you go if you would go as far as sending your son to be crucified for our sin, God, God, that you will go just as far to correct us. And so God may that produce a healthy fear in our heart of you, a reverential fear in our heart for you, that you are a good father that disciplines his children. And God, may may we see you as redeemer. So God, will you help us there? God, will you send your spirit? God, will you make these things evident? God, will you help these things not just to be known, but to be believed deep down in our soul? God, will you help us live looking to Jesus? God, will you help us live pursuing Jesus? God, will you help us live with our mind fixed on the hope that will be brought to us in Jesus? It's in your good and gracious name that we pray. Amen.